open your Bibles to the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. We're in uh, chapter 12, verses 13 through 18. We're going to read the entire thing, beginning of chapter 12, not all of Revelation. Because this is, you know, Revelation, symbolic book. If you don't have some key to interpretation, then you can go anywhere with it. So our interpretation is like the rest of the Bible. We interpret the Bible by the Bible. And so much of this uh, symbolism is drawn from um, the Old Testament. And so you can see what did those symbols mean in the Old Testament. And it's a key to how do you interpret them today. And so we find ourselves seeing as there's cycles of seven that take place in the book. And um, it, it, a, a lot of it is, you know, this is happening, now let's look at it from another perspective, and then let's look at it from another perspective, because you do see the end of the world several times in the book of Revelation. So there's this idea of seeing what's happening to the persecuted church begins. Remember, this is the letter to the seven churches, which is gone, going to each one of them. And it's not the letter to the seven churches and then the book of Revelation. This book of Revelation is the letters to the seven churches which were seven actual churches at the time, but because of the number seven as well, we also see, because it's meant to be read to the church, that this is not just for them, but for us as well. Don't fall into the other error, which is it's not for us at all unless we're living in the very last days when Jesus is returning, and then this suddenly becomes alive, but that this is a message for the church, just as the rest of the Bible is. And so the message to the seven churches was, in a nutshell, some of you are doing great, you know? I got my phone, I got my keys, I got my wallet, great day. And then some of you are just like, you're almost dead. Jesus stand at the door and knocks, and if you let me in, I'll come with you. And there's a door open to heaven. And then there's some churches that have had, um, someone, was pers- someone was killed for their faith. And so you had all these things that were going on, and Jesus shows himself to begin with as he who walks amidst the seven lampstands, which is the seven churches, we're told. And so that he is in control of the church. He is in control of what is happening to the churches. So that when you see persecution, if you see trial, whatever you see in the churches, know Jesus Christ is in control. And then we get to this cycle of sevens that you might not see as a cycle of seven because it doesn't say, you know, the first trumpet, the second trumpet, the third trumpet. But what you see here is this third kind of panel of the overthrow of the dragon. And so the dragon, we're told, this is Satan, the deceiver of the church. And it takes us back to two two main events that we see um, the revelation hearkening back to is the garden. So where we see the serpent the first time um, tempting um, Adam and Eve and drawing them into sin to disbelieve God, the deceiver of the world who was a murderer from the beginning. And then also the great exodus of God's people from Egypt as they um, travel you know, escaping the clutches of the dragon. He's referred to sometimes in scripture as uh, the Pharaoh too. Um, But this powerful entity that is seeking um, controlled and empowered, energized by Satan to destroy the church, um, to, to defeat Jesus before he's born. And 
but they escape in these different ways and they're through the wilderness and we're told in different places in the Bible that these things happen for, for us, for our instruction, that we are the church in the wilderness. This is our situation. So if you look at chapter 12 beginning in, in verse 1, we see the first of the thing, the first of the this cycle of the, the series of panels sort of way of looking at the overthrow of Satan in this particular way. So let's pray a second. Father God, thank you for your word. Pray for the preaching of your word, the reading and hearing of your word, that you would communicate um, the gospel to us, that we would be able to be changed even by what we hear today. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. And what we're going to see is Satan seeking to destroy Christ before he's born. So, a great sign appears in heaven, a woman clothed in the sun, with the sun and the moon under her feet, and with her head a crown of 12 stars. And we talked about this imagery, but this is the, um, the church of the Old Testament. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. You got to picture these things. These are meant. This was to be red, and so it was to be visualized. A great red dragon, seven heads, ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. These um, power uh, uh, crowns that are on his head. Not just the Stephanos, the victory wreath type thing, but this is like these are powerful forces that uh, have authority. Um, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And so this dragon has more than just power just here, but also the things that seem to be unshakable or swept away. And the dragon stood before the woman and was a, who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And so this is you know, Satan seeking to destroy Christ. And we, we, and we preached through this. We went through the, the Old Testament, sort of going through all these different times where it, you know, the salvation hung on the edge of a, of a needle. You know, it, it's almost done if one thing had happened this way and not that way. But God is in control. And so that every time that Satan seeks to destroy um, the child, um, God comes and has this miraculous um, rescue, if you really look at it. And then verse 5, she gave birth to a male child. So now Jesus is born, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was called up to heaven and to his throne. So we have the exaltation of Christ being enthroned in the heavens. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished 1,260 days, and that's our three-and-a-half-year period, and this is representative of the time of the church from the time of the um, ascension and um, of Christ to the time of his return. So, without going into too much detail about all these things, um, this is the first uh, cycle of seven here. We see the, the work of the dragon trying to defeat and stop Christ from being born, and then too late. It's done. He's died on the cross. He's secured our salvation, and he's ascended into heaven. Then, second view of this. Now, war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and his angels fighting back, but he was defeated. So as we looked at this, we thought, okay, different ways of looking at it could have very well have been some sort of an actual physical, spiritual battle taking place in the heavens, but um, a lot of people look at this as this is a, a, war, a courtroom battle, a scene where it's like, you know, the Old Testament saints are coming in. We talked about the, the high priest 
um, Joshua standing in his filthy robes and Satan standing there next to him and, you know, kind of silly maybe talked about that guy that's on Facebook or Twitter or whatever these things are where he does the, you know, just holds his hands out and says, look at it. So say just sort of like you can't, he can't stand before you in filthy robes. And so all these saints that are coming before, he's just like, you can't let these people into heaven. They're, they're filthy. They're defiled. They're, I have defeated Adam, and they're all born in Adam, and in Adam all die. What are you doing? So it says that, you know, constantly before God, Satan was accusing. And he had some point in there, but God had a deeper C.S. Lewis and Chronicles of Narnia calls it a deeper magic. He actually has a deeper covenantal thing that's going on where he's going to send his son. He himself is going to spill his blood for us so that all these accusations of Satan are going to be, as we saw, nailed to the cross. So that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because, well, we'll see what happens. He was defeated, and then there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So, good news in heaven. There's no accusation. You go to heaven. There's not, Satan's not even, he has no access there anymore. It's like, that's, it's done. What are you going to argue? There's no, there's blood that spilled, there's righteousness covered, there's everything that had been foretold and foreshadowed, all the things, the reason that faith saved people in the Old Testament has now been fulfilled and is visible in heaven, and Satan has no place there anymore, but he's cast down to here. In verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him, how? By the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives, even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So, then we get to our third panel of the dragon. And it's like, begins with this, all right, heaven, he's not even, can't even have access to that anymore. Before, it was a futile effort because Jesus Christ was the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. But now it's actually been accomplished in real time. And he's ascended into heaven. And Satan has been cast down. And then we get to where we are in verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he, now he pursues the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to help the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. I, I love that little ending right there. Now, in the original 
writings. They didn't have um, chapter and verses and things like that. It was just written. Um, so some English translations have this beginning in chapter 13, and they don't end chapter 12 with, and he stood on the sand of the sea. I mean, it's still there. It just starts in the next chapter. So if you've, you've got one of those translations and you haven't done your homework, you might not read that verse at the end, but it's just good literature. It's just good. Just like, and he stood on the sand of the sea. And it's like, okay, then what happens? But we're going to look at this little verse in just a moment. But what we have seen is, first, the verse 13, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth. So he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. Now remember, he'd been doing that, but the purpose was to stop Christ from being born. That was the whole thing, to stop Christ from being born. And, you know, Noah, the whole world going to be destroyed. Oh, that pretty much ends it. Noah and his family. And then, you know, get the Tower of Babel, all this stuff happening again. It's like the whole world, they're not doing what they're supposed to do. They're not spreading out. Nobody's going to call of Abraham. You know, so there's all this, these little things that, that happen. And we looked at several of those things before. So he was pursuing the woman to stop Christ from being born. And then Christ is born, of course, there's a temptation of Jesus and all these things. And, and maybe even Satan thinks he's won by crucifying Christ on the cross and making him a curse and thinking, now I've really got Jesus, I've made even him a curse. And it's like, eh, he's become a curse for his people. He's been resurrected. He's righteous. You, you didn't get Jesus. You actually were the cause of his um, and the cause of our um, salvation. I mean, how that's got to really aggravate you. You know, the thing that you do to destroy everything is the thing that's sort of pivotal in the salvation of all the people. So I, I talked about, you guys knew Dr. Dorwin Moore, right, down there in Manning? <laughs> he said he had a, uh, a, a little dirt road that would go get him to his house quicker. It was, it was a, an earth bridge sort of thing, and there were um, beavers that were damming it up. And so when it would dam it up, it would flood his little driveway and he couldn't get in that way so he'd go gosh I didn't talk about it said, how bad he'd go he'd break the beaver's dams up so he'd break it up and he'd get through again and he said suddenly they build it up again and he, it's like and he said he told me one time he says I think beavers just hate the sound of running water <laughs> which I don't think is accurate but it's funny and um, so I always thought I was like yeah it's like Satan he just hates the sound of God working so what he does he tries to stop it he, he dams it up and then Jesus goes and it just comes gushing forth. And it's like, say, and he's like, every time I do this, I just make God's glory and grace louder. And so, you know, what he ought to do is just say, I'm not doing that anymore because I see what happens. But he can't stand it. So he just goes and does it again. And it's got to be the most frustrating thing to keep building dams for somebody to bust. And it just causes the thing you're trying to stop to be louder and louder. So you can see why it says Satan is furious with these things because he's just and maybe you felt that way before the thing you're trying to accomplish you just keep making it the thing you're trying to stop everything you do just makes it worse and so you and you can't help yourself so he sees he's thrown down he's pursuing the woman now not to stop Christ from being born but just to get the woman just to get the church because of his hatred for Christ which is the body of Christ so if I can't get Jesus there I'll get him here, just out of pure spite and evil intent, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, the church, 
And John writes this, and in first or second John, he refers to the church as the elect lady, and then he'll refer to the children. So the, the church is referred to as a mother, and the church is also referred to as the children. So, you know, there's the, the church in general, and then there's individual believers, and that's what we'll see here. So the, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. And we see this phraseology in Daniel, and it just really means a year and two years and then a half a year, which adds up to what? Where's Mason? Three and a half years. Okay, so this is that same symbolic time of the time of the church is where we are now living in the wilderness. Now, just to see this sim- symbolism and kind of get a richer feel for what it is that God's communicating, if you'll um, turn to Exodus, which is kind of easy to find, but second book of the Bible. We're going to go back to it in just a little bit. Exodus chapter 19, verse 4. And um, in chapter 19, he's just you know, telling Moses all these things he's done. And in chapter 19, verse 4, he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Now, we remember that if you, you know, know the, the story. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Okay, so it's not just some, he didn't just come up with this in the book of Revelation. This is Old Testament symbolism and language, this on wings of eagles, this giant, this huge, powerful bird of prey. And he's giving the church, he's giving the people, uh, his people, these wings to be able to escape. And this is what he did. So he's saying, church, this is what I'm doing. This is, I'm saving the church. I am giving the church these great wings of an eagle. Satan is pursuing you. Satan is after the church. It's going to be completely ineffective. Okay? He will not destroy the church. Then Isaiah chapter 40. And um, it's a famous verse. Many people, I think it's in some songs that we sing. So Isaiah 40 verses 30 and 31. So it's the end of Isaiah chapter 40. <laughs> he says, um, Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So I only bring this one up because we're familiar with it, a lot of us. And so you see, again, these eagle's wings given to the woman, given to the church. As you have this powerful, you know, was the serpent in the garden, now this huge, great red dragon with seven heads and diadems, all these things. This powerful world demonic force coming after the church. I mean, what, I mean, we're kind of, we, we don't have you know, tanks and things like this. We, we can't, you know, fight this, but spiritual warfare, and that's what we have to keep our, our minds on, and so we're given these wings. So verse 14 in Revelation 12, the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she is to be nourished. 
And this is what happens. This is the church. You're supposed to be in church. You're supposed to be a part of the church. You're supposed to uh, receive, we call it the means of grace, where you hear the preaching of the word, the prayers of God's people, the encouragement of one another. We come together to the table of our Lord. We, uh, we don't, you can um, pray at home. You can read the Bible at home. You can do all of these things by yourself, and you should do them at home. You should do these, uh, you know, worshiping the Lord and your families and things. But the church and is often neglected. And it ought not be because this is the primary means that God gives of nourishing the church, his people, in the wilderness. Um, baptism, you know, the promise of what the, the gospel symbolizes, cleansing of sin, washed clean from your sin. You're walking around as a believer, washed clean by the Holy Spirit. So you got that going for you. But what about my daily life? I get tired, I sin, I grumble, I complain, I wonder if you're real, I wonder why do you do this, and I, I, I you know, get mad at people who cut me off in traffic, whatever. And he gives us this supper to remind us that I am with you, take, eat, I am with you. Your table fellowship, renewal of the covenant, um, my blood spilled for you, new covenant, my body broken for you, eat of me, take of me, this, you need me to live too. You're clean, but you can't live this life without me. In verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. So this is how he's seeking to destroy the church. So it's this, his, you know, his dragon mouth. You know, it's actually all these different manifestations of the dragon coming out. He's got seven heads. His mouth's coming out. It's water. It's, you know, so you have to kind of think of the exodus with, with this stuff, too, as you're, you're reading and, and thinking of these things. So let's do that. So hold your place here. Exodus chapter 15. Because we're... John is obviously wanting us to, to bring this to mind <clears throat> so we can do it. And... Um, the flood and elsewhere in the Old Testament we see that God's using the images of the flood frequently to represent um, several things but one thing is that I believe applies here is the persecution of God's people by God's enemies from whom they are delivered by God so this is what we're seeing here Exodus 15 beginning in verse 1 <clears throat> Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed Gloriously, The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. This is, you, know, you see the Tetragrammaton, that's capital L-O-R-D. That's the four-letter thing for God, Yahweh. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. He has chosen officers. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Remember, so here we are, even as a church, you know, we, we call it colloquially as we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. And that's where they were. Most powerful army in the world at the time, on your heels. And where do you? Slaves who've been beaten down, who've been trying to be killed. You, you don't have much. You're not very strong. Um, in a lot of ways, you've, you've forgotten who God is, and you're being led out, and he's coming after you, the whole army, and you're doing good, 
and then you get to the Red Sea, and you can't go through that, and here they come, and you're done. And Moses stretched out a staff. God, the waters that were meant for you know, destruction, the army that was meant for destruction, is destroyed in the flood of judgment. So you see verse 7, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. Now remember, this is true today. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood as a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. The earth swallowed them. And then we go back to Revelation 12, verse 15 again. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. So Satan seeking to destroy the church on earth, but the earth came to help the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And just as we're told in Exodus, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the enemies of God. So that's what we see. She flies away like an eagle, lands in the wilderness to be um, nourished by God. The dragon pours out a river to, like a, a deluge, a, a torrent to come after, after them. And the earth opens up its mouth and swallows the river. So then the dragon becomes furious. This is, you know, now that, <laughs> yeah, I can't even, you know. Jesus in heaven, the church, I'll just destroy the church, and that'll be the end of that. I can't destroy the church. But he became furious with the woman, and so he goes off to make war with the rest of her offspring. So in other words, I'm just going to get Christians. I'm going to get them, every one of them, whoever I can get, prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That's what he does. That's what he's doing. And we'll see in these next cycles of the downthrow of the dragon how he uses uh, different worldly powers to accomplish that. But to those who remain faithful, to those who love not their lives even to death, he gives a crown of glory. He gives a crown of life. He gives a, a victor's crown. And so the dragon's furious. He gets off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So, because of Satan's hatred for Jesus... But God rescues and protects the church through his supernatural protection. So Satan goes and wars against individual Christians and groups of Christians together, too. He can't get the church, but he can try to get aspects of it. And this will be, um, you know, this flood that's coming, and it's coming from his mouth. And so you're seeing things like 
um, how does he attack the church like this? And it could be through deceit. That's what he did in the garden. Or it's just like, let me, let me, let me convince the church of some lies about God. And so you, you see, and let me, let me put some, you know, the, the church's one foundation talks about and false sons in her pale. It's like there are uh, false believers, false teachers, false prophets that are going to come and they're going to seek to draw away God's people. They'll seek to, um, you know, like a, the wolf among the sheep. They're going to try to grab some sheep off through false teaching and saying, this is what's true. This is what's right. This is, this is what you need to believe. You know, the, the politician saying, vote for me and I'll set you free. And you have the, the preachers from the pulpit saying, believe this and you'll be set free. What does it mean to be set free? Well, you won't have any more pain. If you have enough faith, you'll, you'll have plenty of money. If you have enough faith, you'll have, you know, all the things that Satan promised to give to Jesus. And Jesus says, no, God says, worship him and him only. Don't give me the kingdom of the cross and we have too many churches that are trying to give Christians a kingdom without a cross to bear trying to say things are going to be fine don't worry about it if you just have enough faith because there's truth in that <laughs> but you know my car breaks down my dog gets I don't want to mention too many things because too many people have too much going on but it's like much of what Revelation is teaching is don't believe when things are going bad that it means I don't love you. Don't believe that Satan is winning. Don't believe that this is all there is. Don't buy the lie that it was told in the garden is he really isn't looking out for you. He knows that when you eat, you'll be like him. You'll be God's, knowing the difference between good and evil. And Eve's like, hmm, that makes sense to me. I can't believe God would do such a thing as that. And she takes and eats and she gives it to Adam and he eats too. And then Yahweh comes where we the pre-incarnate Jesus walking in the garden in the spirit of the day. And where are you? And they're hiding. And that's what happens when we begin to believe lies about God is we tend to hide from him. And he says, <laughs> you're not supposed to hide. I've given you wings. You know, you, you're able, I'm nourishing you. You come to me. I know that you have done these things, but Jesus has done more. Jesus has given himself. Jesus' blood of the covenant. We take communion. This is the cup of the new covenant. No condemnation. There's nothing for Satan or anybody else to accuse believers who are in Christ of because there's now no condemnation. Now, those outside of Christ, I mean, we've seen this in Revelation. It's just demonic forces and activities and lies and deceit and everything. They think, oh, look, look at us. We're doing great and wonderful things for the world. We're, we're, we're going to make everything great. We're going to fix all this stuff. We're going to do these things, and we're going to make this just a beautiful place. And if we could just, and Satan's just like, that's right, that's right. And he's, you know, there's a, sorry. Listen to, to Metallica lately, and they've got an album, Master of Puppets, Pulling Your Strings. You know, it's just like he's, he's pulling your strings. Church, don't let that happen to you. The only way to keep Satan from pulling our strings is to be in his word, to be in the church, to be around other believers, to, to listen to what the church has said, and not just the church today, but the church through time. Read some confessions, read some old commentaries, read some old writings from people from church history who, I mean, you know we're not the first people to find out about Jesus, right? that there's been smarter people than us that lived before and people who've been through more than us before and that um, studied and wrote and, you know, all these things. We, we firmly confess in Scripture alone, sola scriptura, that this is the final word for faith and practice. But I'm up here telling you things about, I'm preaching the word. There's teachers. And the wonderful thing, if you want to, wouldn't it be great for some of us to think, you know, what if John Calvin walked in and could just start teaching? John Knox or Augustine could just walk in and say, hey, let me share a few things of, with, about God. Well, he'd just pick up a book and read what he wrote. I mean, it's the, the glorious stuff. But it's going to be difficult because 
we ain't as smart as they used to be. So when you read their stuff that they wrote, it's a little tricky to read sometimes. You know, you got to, anyway, take your time, read something, look up words, and immerse yourself in what other people at other times that are out of our cultural fog have said about God and Scripture. But make sure it's people who believe the Bible are trying to go from Scripture and then test what they say against the Scripture. And then you know, preach the gospel to yourself because deceit, persecution, false teaching, discouragement, um, lying about people, all these things that you see, the divisions in the church, all this stuff, um, Satan just laughing with delight the day the music died. You know, he's just like, this is what I want. I don't want you together. I want you to to be swallowed by the flood. And what Jesus is telling us is he has no power here. So it can all seem like a flood, like a Red Sea, an all-powerful world army attacking from behind, an impassable sea before us, and what can we do? And you can't do anything. You have to have the man of God's own choosing, Jesus Christ, who parts the waters, who opens the earth, who provides the wings, who, who nourishes us and tells us how to stand firm. In verse 17, he's actually saying how we do defeat and drive Satan crazy is by keeping the commandments of God and holding to the testimony of Jesus. Now, without that becoming legalistic, what we're saying is, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to follow all that I've commanded you. You know, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the commandments of God are not burdensome. The Ten Commandments are not given to us as a means of salvation. Uh, Israel failed because they did not pursue the law unto faith. They, they pursued it as a means of salvation. This is the law, the Ten Commandments, the heart of God existing. It's, it's a, it is a way of God putting into the Ten Words an expression of the way his love would be manifest when a true person who loved Jesus Christ, what he would just be like, loving the Lord his God with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, and all his strength, and loving his neighbor as himself. And then loved his life not unto death, but gave himself up for her to present to himself a bride without spot or wrinkle. And so we're to keep his commandments. How do you do that? Love. But not just any kind of love. The world will say, here's a good phrase I love these days. Love is love. No, it ain't. <laughs> it depends on what you love. <laughs> no, love is defined by God. What is love? Only one God. Don't, make, don't worship him with image. Don't make idols. Uh, don't take his name in vain. Don't say God said something when he didn't say it. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your mother and your father. Don't kill. Don't, 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 um, don't commit adultery. Uh, don't steal. Don't um, bear false testimony against your neighbor. And don't covet things. I mean, that's how you love people. That's how you love God. That's how you love your neighbor. That's keeping his commandments. Out of love. Not, a, not to earn your salvation, but just... As a believer, you've been given the Holy Spirit. So you know truth resonates in a way that falsehood doesn't. It's an internal spiritual thing. But if you ignore the church, if you ignore his word, if you ignore his spirit long enough, you will be turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And that's a dangerous place to be. We want to be nurtured in the desert and to be a light to other people. 
who are lost. And so we see, that's why I love how this ends, and holding to the testimony of Jesus. I mean, this is all, you know, not only <laughs> keeping the commandments. If you just do that, but you don't hold the testimony of Jesus, then you're a legalist, and you're just like always fruit inspecting and telling people they got to do this. And we add to the word of God, like ended up happening. That's what Jesus was most upset with the Pharisees and scribes about, how you're, you know, you're, you're keeping the commandments of God as if they're made up by men, and you're not understanding what these things are all about. The testimony of Jesus is, <laughs> you know, look how he lived his life certainly as an example to see how to live, but he kept the law for us, and then he went to the cross and died for us so that we who are ever imperfect the side of heaven and still sin and still fall far short have been covered by the blood of Christ for those who believe in him and have been adopted into his family. He represents us. As in Adam, all die. As in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, all live. If you are in Christ, you're covered. You're loved. You're born again. You are held. You're kept. You're you're forever held secure. Your faith may go up and it may go down, but for the true believer, um, he's, you have been regenerate and you have been given faith and you will be held. But Dr. Kelly had a saying that the spirit blows where it will, but he has told us where some of the windy places are. So if you're upset with God, where is God? Why aren't you doing this? Don't blame God. Francis Schaeffer had this thing he's talking about. Somebody's running from God, running from God, running from God, and one day they think, I've run so far. I'll never be able to find him. He says, and you turn around and just maybe think about where would I go. He's right there. He's right there with his head on your head, turning you around. So get him to finally take a look so that our prodigals who are in him, hopefully, are given a certain amount of ability to, to go out and live and eat with the pigs so they come to their senses and they say, I will be received. I've been too far from Christ for too long. I've been deceived. And he stands on the sea, the sand of the sea. That's, that's intentional. Um, the great angel, if you remember chapter whatever it was, the great angel <laughs> that came down in Revelation. Um, Oh, it must be Revelation 12, 10 through 11. No, that's where we are now. Anyway, this great angel comes down from heaven, and he stands. He plants one foot on the earth. Gase. And, and it's not sand. It's earth. And the other foot in the sea. So he's solid, and he's secure. Christ, the solid rock we stand. He is secure. He is, you, when you're in Christ, you're there. But if you've ever been to the ocean, and you kind of you stand in the, in the sand, and the, the waves are coming and stuff, it's the weirdest feeling. It's like this is, you know, shifting sand it's like you can't you stand there long enough you're like it's starting to consume you and stuff and this is where this dragon stands on the sand of the sea now we're going to see this great beast that's going to come out of the sea and all this stuff but it's all like the wizard of Oz. it's like i am the great and powerful eyes and it's just this guy back there that's doing this stuff but he does have great power but if you resist him, the devil flees from you. It's all this big, it, it, don't toy with the things of the demonic realm. Um, don't think they don't have power. Michael, when he was disputing, the, the, the archangel Michael is disputing with um, Satan over the body of Moses, we're told in Jude, and did not presume a blasphemous statement against him, but said, you know, may God rebuke you of these things. So any rebuke of Satan is greater as he who is in me than he who is in the Lord. In the name of Jesus Christ, I rebuke thee, Satan, and all demonic forces, things like that. Don't think that you should 
play and toy with these things. His wrath and power are great, and he's armed with cruel hate. But one little word will fail him. And so that's one thing we've learned from, I've learned anyway, from, from Malcolm in, in Haiti. He's always talking about praying the blood of Christ. And we know this, but, you know, he gets involved in these really weird things are happening in Haiti, demonic activity, spiritual things are happening. He's like, man, you just got to play the blood of Christ. Blood of Christ. I don't know what it is. About play. I don't know if he said I don't know what it is because we know what it is. This is what's defeated. Satan is the blood of Christ. This is what he gives us. He's the body and blood of Christ. This is what you have. You're, you get to eat it. You get to drink it. You get to be filled with it. And it defeats Satan. When a person is baptized, um, or even at the Lord's Supper, you proclaim his death until he comes. You proclaim his death. Who are we proclaiming this to? Because the world isn't necessarily in here. We're not proclaiming it to, to the world. But if the world listens, listen world, we're proclaiming Christ's death. You have no power here. We proclaim it to the demonic powers, the principalities. All of these powers are out there seeking to destroy the church and believers. We're like, you know what? He is for me. He is in me, and I am in him. He gives me his very body and blood to drink. There's no condemnation. My blood will never be spilled for my sins because Christ's blood was spilled and cleansed me of all sin. And we proclaim it to our souls. Oh, soul, revive. Listen, the condemnation of the flesh is powerful. Your flesh, your own, <laughs> we're our own worst enemies. Our goodness, you're not good enough. I mean, you got the little images like you got Satan on one side and you got the angel on the other. It's like, no, it's just us in our own heads thinking these things because the gospel is way too. We're our accusers. Satan's been cast out of heaven accusing that he can't do it anymore because there's no means of condemnation. So when we begin to condemn ourselves, we need to look to the cross. And you know what's on the cross? Not Jesus. The record of condemnation that stands against us has been nailed to the cross. Jesus, seated on his throne, seated at the right hand of God the Father, praying prayers of intercession for us, giving us his spirit to live within us. And we don't even know how to pray. The spirit within us is praying with groanings too deep for words to our Father. You have God praying for you. You have God giving himself to you. You have Jesus living this life and dying on the cross, giving the church wings, having the earth to open up and nourishing us and when satan comes before us we have to remember none of this stuff is to be taken lightly we live in a cursed world there is death the last enemy to be destroyed is death and that gives us great hope and paul somewhere tells us that he sees um, god crushing satan under our feet so that while Jesus gave that death blow to Satan. What the church is doing is continuing to crush Satan under our feet. There's a great movie. I don't call it a great movie. The Apostle with Robert De Niro. If you saw it, I haven't seen it in a long time. I'm not sure where I was in my spiritual life when I watched it the first time, but it's an interesting movie. He, uh, he Anyway, so he's got this scene. He's a Pentecostal preacher of some sort. And he's got this song, and he's up there. He's just... He's stomping, and he's got to say, stomping Satan under my feet. And stomp, come on, we're stomping Satan. Everybody's doing it, stomping Satan under their feet. And I'm like, you know, sometimes it might be good to be in a Pentecostal church and do things like that to symbolically say, this is what we're doing. Every time we proclaim Christ, every time we partake of the supper, every time we see somebody be baptized, every time we uh, give an encouraging word, every time we pray, every time we be the body of Christ, every time the word of Christ comes to us, anything occurs, and we're able to say, 
not me, but you. Um, I want to do this, but Christ, I will, I'm going to turn the other cheek. Things like that. Um, Satan tempts me with despair, but I say, he lifts me up. He shines his face on me. You're crushing Satan under your feet. But you don't have to do it because it's been done. This is Jesus holding us up and enabling us to live in this way. Well, let's pray. Father God, I wish I could express things better. I thank you that by your spirit and your word that you not only pray for us with groanings too deep for words, you preach sermons to us too deep for words. You, you, um, you speak under, beneath, and through things that I might say according to your word, that you, you, your word can be twisted as many people do, but by your spirit as we study your word, compare your word to itself, come to your table, see your love in the face of others, and experience you in our very hearts. We know that you're real, you're there. There cannot not be a God or else there would still be nothing. So Lord, you are the ground of all things, of all reason. You are the savior and protector, king of the church. You're on the throne, you're in control. We get angry, we get mad, we get confused, we get sad, but there are times when we shine brightly. And you love us through every single part of it. And one day we will see you face to face and see you as you are because we will be glorified. We await that day of great anticipation. And we thank you for this meal that gives us a subtle taste of heaven. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.